The word of the Lord from Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and, and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Perception is a funny thing. You know, they say seeing is believing, right? But I don't know if that really gets at the truth of it. It seems so often that we can see, see something in front of us, but it's not clear to me that what we see is the whole picture, is reality, is the truth. That's not always obvious. One of the things I do on campus during normal times is gather with faculty every other week and, and read books together. We've been doing it over Zoom this fall. But last year, last fall, we read a book by a guy named Alan Lightman. Lightman is a professor at MIT in Boston. Uh, and the, the name of the book is Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. 
Lightman teaches physics at MIT. He's a theoretical physicist, and he says he has a purely scientific view of the world. Very rational, very empirical. He's definitely not prone to religious flights of fancy. But he opens his book telling a story of taking his small motorboat to a little island off the coast of Maine where he spends his summers. Lightman says one night, in the wee hours of the morning, he was motoring towards his dock. It was moonless. And so taking a chance, he turned off his running lights, he turned off his engine, and he laid down in the boat. And he looked up. And Lightman says, after a few minutes, my world dissolved into this scarlet sky. My, my body disappeared. I found myself falling into infinity. A feeling came over me that I had not experienced before. I felt an overwhelming connection to the stars as if I were part of them. And the vast expanse of time seemed compressed to a dot. I felt emerging with something larger than myself, a grand and eternal eternity, a hint of something absolute. What do you think happened there? How did such an ordinary thing, like looking at the stars, turn into something else entirely? Something so powerful and so mystical. Was it a moment of clarity, or, or, or was it a delusion? Lightman concludes the story by saying, after a time, I, I sat up and I started the engine again. I had no idea how long I'd been lying there. I don't know how long these disciples had been walking along that road to Emmaus. Luke tells us it was a journey of seven miles, which means probably long enough for the dust to build up between their toes and for the afternoon sun to make a bead of sweat or to roll from their forehead. Maybe long enough for a rumble of hunger to move across their belly. Long enough to push through the small talk, to push into some heavier stuff, to turn over that news about Jesus of Nazareth, about that cross, about that crown of thorns, about that darkness in the middle of the day. Their faces were downcast, Luke tells us. But suddenly, they're not alone. Out of nowhere, this man joins them, and he, he's set upon them really quickly, but he's not out of breath. And In fact, for someone who's been walking the same dusty road, he looks pretty refreshed. And the stranger asks Cleopas, what are you talking about so intently? And Cleopas kind of lets it all spill out. Cleopas tells Jesus all about Jesus. Sometimes I wonder if we do that too, that we come to church to worship Jesus and we gather with friends for a Bible study. And sometimes what ends up happening is, is we kind of tell Jesus how he should be what he should do to fit our idea or our mold of what he should be. I think church is like that sometimes. I actually think church is a lot like this passage, or that this passage is actually a lot like church. You can see it if you pull back from the intimate conversation here on the road. Think about the structure of this story. 
some disciples meet on their journey. Jesus shows up wherever two or three are gathered, right? And then the word is opened, and the scriptures are expounded. And after the the reading of scripture, there's the breaking of bread. The disciples are fed, and once they're fed, once Jesus has become part of them, they're sent on their way to go tell the good news. That's the classic Christian pattern of worship, right? Gathering, word, meal, and sending. Neat, huh? But I think it's actually more than just neat. Uh, More than just a clever way of seeing the church's worship tucked into this story in, in the Gospel of Luke. Luke also captures something deeply human here. Something of, of the, the, the very thing we bring to worship. It was Cleopas's words that stuck out most to me this week. We had hoped, says Cleopas. We had hoped. One preacher I'm fond of says these are among the most realistic and heartbreaking words in all of Scripture. So much is said in these four words. They speak of a future that was not to be, a dream that created energy and enthusiasm but didn't materialize, a promise that created faith that seemed to be just proven false. We had hoped. Speaks of a future that is closed off and irrelevant and dead. And that's about the most tragic thing you can imagine. And I don't think Cleopas is the only person who says, we had hoped, I had hoped. I think they're on the lips of Christians all over the world as they gather for worship in whatever way we're able to gather right now. Some people gather for worship for theological reflection. Some gather for singing. Some some gather to see friends. But for a lot of us, we come with, we had hoped. We come with burning hearts like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, but we come with broken hearts, too. And so the praise band plays and the preacher preaches, and we think about lost pay, of missed promotions. We worry about our bank statements. We wrestle with depression and anxiety and deep loneliness. We hate what we see in the mirror. We think about the darkness in our own hearts and the things we'd love to just sweep under the rug, but they keep coming out and gnawing at us. Those hurtful things that we've said, those hurtful things that we've heard, those broken promises and busted relationships and abuse and infidelity and addiction. We bring that to church every week. And that's okay. That's good. Not because wallowing in darkness is the way to go. I don't think cynicism and darkness are good habits to let into your heart. But we live in a culture where those things are avoided. The heavier conversations are often skirted around. We live in a pain-averse and a death-denying culture. And sometimes that means we avoid these things. And so we adopt a power of positive thinking. And we rush very quickly into into some positive uh, frame of mind. But deep down, many of us still say, we had hoped, we had hoped, we had hoped. But of course, we don't stay 
on that road to Emmaus like these disciples. We reach our destination. And at that destination, at worship, is a table. And on that table is a loaf of bread and a cup. And it's with that bread and with that cup that the Word made flesh makes himself known to us. The central truth of the universe is not we had hoped. It is not darkness and despair and dashed hopes. The central truth of the universe is this that the body and blood of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, has become for us the food and drink of eternal life. All the aches of our time, all the dashed hopes of our time, have been met on the road by our Lord and have been overcome. And in the place of all that bitter fruit, he offers us his body and his blood and the transfiguration of all that sorrow. That's the gospel for broken-hearted people. Sometimes I don't think we know how extravagant a gift this table, this bread, and this cup is. Sometimes I think we kind of shrink it down and, and turn it into a kind of a little ritual, a little remembrance that Jesus died for our sins and his blood washes us clean. And that's all true. That is totally what that's all about. But I think it's even bigger and better than that. I don't know if you remember your catechism lesson, but in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 28, the catechism refers to the table as the place where we receive all his gifts. This big gospel is made known at this table. It is not a mere remembrance, not a mere little ritual. The Catechism tells us that we are promised nourishment and refreshment, which is vital for people who are trucking along the road to Emmaus or, or wherever we're going. It tells us that we are promised eternal life, which is a vital thing in a world where everything seems disposable and temporary. And it tells us that we are promised to be made part of something bigger than ourselves, united more and more to Jesus' sacred body, and in a time of isolation and loneliness, that seems like the best news. So maybe you came here this morning or joined us online, and you've only been half listening because you've got these doubts nagging at you, chipping away in your heart. Maybe this whole Christian thing seems so far-fetched and you're really struggling with the big questions that don't seem to have answers. Come to this table, then. Come and meet the God who meets you in the midst of that mystery and that longing and all that yearning. Come and meet the God who wants to fill you up with good things, even if you don't have all the answers. Or maybe you joined us this morning and you're only half listening because you've been thinking about that kid that you and your buddies picked on at school that one time. You know the awkward kid who's the butt of everyone's jokes, and you saw him cry, and you feel awful about it, and your jerk buddies still think it's funny, but now you've got that sinking feeling in your stomach every time you think about it. Come to this table. Come and meet the God who offers forgiveness through, the body, through his body and blood, 
Come and be filled with the food of reconciliation. Or maybe you joined us this morning, but you're still feeling intensely alone. It is so easy right now for that to be the thing that defines your life. And maybe it's not just during a pandemic. Maybe it's life in general. You see other people gathering with their friends, but you, seem, you can't seem to make it click with others. Come to this table. Come and know that those who partake with this feast become one body. For they all eat the same bread and share the same loaf. Or maybe you got up this morning before church and you looked in the mirror and you started to hear the rumble of those jungle drums that tell you that you're ugly, that your body isn't lovable. And so you turn off the lights, throw on a few layers of baggy clothes, and hope that people don't notice you or laugh behind your back. Come to this table. Know that your God loves you so much that he wants to meet you in body and in soul. Know that your body is a temple of this God. That he wants to know you from the inside out and that his light shines through you even if you can't see it yourself. Or maybe you gathered with us this morning and you're thinking about scarcity. The economic pinch is on for so many of us. Things are not going well at work. There's no hours. There's no place to work even right now. And you've been arguing about money at home, and it's taking its toll. Come to this table. This is a feast unlike any other feast in the world. This is the only feast that where more people come, the more bread there is. The bread of life never runs out. It just grows and grows and grows. There is no scarcity at this table. Or maybe you gathered this morning and you're thinking about that person in your family who just got a scary diagnosis. Someone you love is sick, is ailing, is not long for this world. Come to this table. Come and meet the God who promises us abundant, everlasting, endless life. Meet Jesus, the King that death could not contain, and know that you and me and all of us, whether sick or healthy, are held firmly in the grip of his hand. Come to this table. I have to confess, I feel a bit weird now because I've invited you all to come to this table, but for most of you, you can't come to this table. But Jesus' little disappearing act at the end of our story today means that space and time, they're not the limits that we think they are. But you know, even, even under normal circumstances, it can feel kind of weird to invite people to the table. Because under normal circumstances, we don't come to the table very often. In fact, most of the times we gather for worship in, in, in the Christian Reformed Church, we don't come to the table. And I wonder, why are we so stingy with this feast? 
If it is the sign and seal of the promises of God, of all his gifts, shouldn't we want it all the time? I know I need it. Because there is so much noise and and so much competition for my loyalty that I need that sign because I'm prone to wander off the road to, to Emmaus and just forge my own path. If the breaking of the bread is the way that Jesus reveals himself to us, isn't it weird that we skip over it so often? If Christian worship is about gathering, about opening the scriptures, about breaking bread together and being sent back into the world, why do we just skip over the one part all the time? Don't you miss it? I'm guessing a lot of us gathered this morning know what it feels like to to skip a meal, to have that little pit of hunger in your belly, that little pit of anticipation for when it will be filled. It feels so good to have that hunger satisfied, to have that need met. And so like those disciples, we come to church with broken hearts. We come to church with burning hearts. Do we come with hungry hearts? One of the things I've done for many years in my work on campus is gather students early in the morning, on Monday morning, to kick off the week by sharing this cup and sharing this bread. Some mornings it's just a few of us. We sing a cappella, sometimes in several keys at once, and we break bread, and we pour the cup, and we remember what Christ has done for us before we set out on the work week ahead of us. And when I'm telling students about just how powerful this meal is and why they should come up early on a Monday morning, I always tell the story of Sarah Miles. Maybe you've heard of her. Sarah is the director of one of the largest food pantry programs in California. It's run out of a church in San Francisco. Sarah is a Christian, but she wasn't always a Christian. She describes her younger self as a blue state secular intellectual with a habit of skepticism. She grew up rather indifferent to religion. But she wasn't indifferent to food. She spent her early adulthood doing two kinds of work, working as a restaurant cook and as a journalist in Central American war zones. And in the restaurant, she learned the significance of food as cuisine, as well-crafted, properly seasoned, tradition-honoring. But in her work as a war reporter, She learned about food as a justice issue. It wasn't a matter of fancy cuisine there. It was a matter of seeing hunger, seeing starvation, and seeing how important and life-giving it is to even have the simplest meal. So Sarah left that work behind, and she moved to California. And one winter morning, she went for a walk, and she strolled into St. Gregory of Nyssa's Episcopalian Church in San Francisco. She didn't know why. She had no earthly reason to be there. She'd never said the Lord's Prayer. She'd never heard a gospel reading. And she wasn't really interested in becoming a religious nut, as she says. But the building was beautiful, and it beckoned to her for some reason. And so she entered, and she found a seat, and she tried not to catch anyone's eye. She said she stood, and then she sat, and then she sang, and stood, and sat, and and stood up and sang some more. It was all pretty peaceful and kind of interesting. And then everyone at St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopalian Church gathered around the big table in the middle of the center of the sanctuary. And they sang some more. And then someone put a piece of fresh, crumbly bread in her hands and said, the body of Christ. 
And then someone, someone handed her a cup of sweet wine and said, the blood of Christ. And then something outrageous and terrifying happened. Jesus happened. To this day, Sarah still can't explain her first communion, her almost accidental communion. On one level, she knew what was happening, something very ordinary. She was eating bread and having a sip of wine. But on another, on the other hand, she knew something else was happening. God, the Spirit, Jesus, was real, was there. And she said it short-circuited her ability to do anything but cry. And she left that service, and throughout the next week, she, she couldn't reconcile that experience with anything she had known or been told. It wouldn't go away. For some reason, she wanted that bread again and again, all the next day, all the next week. And the week after that, she said it was a sensation as urgent as physical hunger, and it pulled her back to that table. She writes that her background as a cook and as a reporter working alongside starving people made her responsive to communion, knowing something of the power of hunger, knowing something about the deep satisfaction of having that hunger met. She said it taught her that God could be located in our experience, in our bodies, tasted in food, and all of it meant that her body was connected literally and mysteriously to all the bodies of the people around her. And it meant she knew right down in her gut that she was loved beyond reason. For Sarah, this former blue state secular intellectual, Christianity wasn't an argument that she could win. It wasn't a thesis statement that could be proven. It was a mystery that she could swallow. Sometimes I think we're the kind of people who like to live inside our head. And I think Christian Reformed people are often like this. We read the scriptures and think, yeah, we got the right idea. That's what matters, so we're good. Sometimes I think we're the kind of people who are prone to filling our bellies with all sorts of junk food that our culture offers us. But we know it doesn't satisfy. And sometimes I think we struggle to see the glory that is hidden behind this simple meal. In fighting, when we find ourselves doubting that anything at all happens when we come to this table. Perception is a funny thing. You know, half the Bible is about people not seeing straight, of missing the point. And then the other half seems to be about God hiding somewhere, in a cloud, in, in fog on the mountain, in a burning bush, in the ordinary flesh of a man from Nazareth. But then, at one marvelous instant, around one ordinary table, Jesus, the risen Lord, makes himself known in the breaking of the bread. And that meal, at that house in Emmaus, that's the same meal we share together this morning, even though we're apart. It is the same meal we have shared with Christians throughout the ages, throughout time and space. Jesus still makes himself known in the breaking of the bread. So this morning, may we come to the table
to this table, and to the extension of this table that's in your home this morning. And may we know how mouth-watering a life of faith can be. May our deep, deep hunger and hopes be satisfied there. And may we see our risen Lord bringing gifts to his people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.